This is the weekly message from Hope Church Malmesbury. We're so glad you can join us. This week's sermon is part of our series, The Promise and the Purpose. We're walking slowly through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, promise by promise. Find out more about Hope Church and how to support our ministry at www.thehope.church. I hope this message will help you to see the good purpose that God has for your life and help you to walk in faith and rely on his promises every day. Here's the message. You know, it's, uh, well, I'd, I'd love listening to uh, music while I'm working, uh, modern worship songs or, or country music. And I used to play my Shania Twain CD a lot. But did you know that Shania Twain's dad was actually called Choo Choo? Yeah, very good. Thank you. We're here all week trying to salmon. So growing old is, is a funny old business. And I've noticed that a lot of the things that in my childhood were considered a punishment, they've now kind of turned into my life goals. You know, eat vegetables, stay at home, have a nap, or even go to bed early. Or is that just me? I don't know. Anyway, we're setting the scene for this morning. We're continuing our slow walk through the book of Luke. And we're going to start this morning by turning the page on a new chapter, chapter 8 in Luke's gospel. Well, I say that because that's not, not exactly true because the chapter divisions that we see in our Bible, they weren't put in there by Luke as he was writing it. He didn't go, hmm, that's the end of a chapter, I'll turn over a new leaf of parchment and start a new one. No. In fact, it wasn't until about the 13th century that Stephen Langton, who was then the Archbishop of Canterbury, divided the Bible up into the chapters that we recognize today. And in fact, it wasn't until the middle of the 16th century that all the verse divisions and the verse numbering uh, was put in. Well, t- today, pretty much all the Bibles you can buy use the same chapter and verse divisions. But when you look in your Bible, not only do you have the chapters, you have the verses, but you also have little sections with with headings in them as well. And those will be unique to each translation. For example, today's passage that we're going to be studying is Luke 8, verses 1 to 3. In the ESV version, there's a little heading that says, Women accompany Jesus. But if you've got a new King James Bible, it will read, Certain women are ministering to Christ. So those, those, little, those little headings were put in by the translators. And it's worth remembering, they weren't part of the original Bible. Those divisions weren't part of the original Bible. So we shouldn't allow them to funnel or blink our understanding or reading of a particular scripture. Just because that's where a paragraph break or a section break was put in by the translators, that doesn't necessarily mean that's where Paul or Peter or Luke was putting the brakes in their chains of thought or even changing topics. And here's something I learnt, uh, learnt this year. Those little sections, okay, where you've got like the little heading and a, a, a break in the structure of the Bible, they're called pericopes, okay, pericopes. Now this is a, a word that I'd read many times in books, but I'd never heard it spoken aloud until I was watching like a video uh, Bible study course. And I learned that I'd been misreading this word all the time. See, 
in my head, whenever I saw that word, I was saying periscope. Which made perfect sense to me because like a periscope pops up and it looks to see what's going on. And I thought these periscopes in the Bible were like the little high-level summary of what was going on in that part. So I don't know what you learned this summer, but I learned how to pronounce pericopes. Anyway, let's turn to today's passage of scripture. It's Luke 8, verses 1 to 3, and it goes like this. It says, Soon afterwards, he, that's Jesus, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. There was Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chizer, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Well, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you might recall that in uh, Luke chapter 7, we read a number of passages which were all focused on the identity and the authority of Jesus. Jesus who had the authority to heal that centurion's servant, even from a distance. Jesus who had authority over death to raise the widow's son at name. Jesus who had the authority to forgive sins, which Dave was talking about last week. And Jesus who was the Messiah that John the Baptist had been waiting for. Well, the narrative flow of Luke's book now shifts and he starts... Instead of focusing on the identity of Jesus, he starts talking about the kingdom of God through parables. But before he goes there, Luke Luke just makes this little aside comment. These three verses where Luke just points out, clarifies who is part of Jesus' gang. Who is his inner circle? Who is this close group of disciples that are working with Jesus? There are the 12 apostles who Luke simply calls the twelve. And there are many others in this group as well. But Luke name checks three women in particular. He says there's Mary, there's Joanna, and there's Susanna. Now one of the things I've noticed reading Luke's gospel, comparing it to the others, is the prominent role that Luke gives to women in the story of Jesus. Now his gospel starts and ends with women having a significant role. Well, saying that, actually starts with Zechariah, who's given a message from an angel, which he doesn't believe, so he gets struck dumb. And so the narrative is taken up by the women. Mary, who does believe what the angel tells her, and Elizabeth, who goes on to give birth to John the Baptist. The good news of the Messiah is shared with Mary and Elizabeth, who go and tell the men what is happening. And Luke ends his gospel with some women. Mary, Magdalene, and Joanna, who's been mentioned in today's passage, they find an empty tomb, and they receive a message from an angel. And the message is that Jesus is alive. So they go back and tell the men who don't believe the message. Not until they've seen the empty tomb for themselves. There's a bit of a pattern of behavior here, isn't there? One of the things that Luke makes clear in his gospel is that these women were part of Jesus's core team, his inner circle. They were trusted, they were valued. They weren't just coming along for the ride. They weren't groupies or fangirls. They were part of the ministry team. And in the case of Joanna and possibly Susanna, as well, women of some wealth who were supporting Jesus and the wider ministry financially. 
So if you think about the society where, where this was all taking place, you know, the, the 12 uh, male apostles would have left their wives and children, perhaps, back at home. So what resources those chaps have from the businesses that they'd walked away from, they'd left at home to feed their wives and children. So there was perhaps nothing spare to take on the road. And so the role of these women who were supporting the group was absolutely vital. They literally kept them all fed and clothed. And Joanna, she's described as the wife of Herod's household manager, which is a pretty senior civil service position. So she and her husband would have been really quite wealthy um, in the town. And when you consider Luke's purpose, when you go back to the right at the start of Luke, he talks about how he's writing this gospel to lay out the facts and the evidence and the eyewitness accounts. And the, the detail that Luke uniquely provides about the birth of Jesus and the early years. And he keeps dropping in these details about what women were there at each of the events. Here when they're going off on the tour around Galilee, at the cross, at the tomb. It makes me think that some, if not a lot, of Luke's source material came from interviews with these women. Interviews with the mother of Jesus and this wider group of women who were part of the group that were with Jesus for all of these years. At the resurrection, when the women went to the garden tomb to care for the body of Jesus and they found the tomb empty, they were told by angels, or in Mary's case, by Jesus himself, go and tell all that you have seen. And this they do. They didn't go back to the 12, well, the 11 at this point in the story because of, you know, Judas. They didn't go back to the apostles and say, Jesus is alive. So now it's kind of over to the men, you take over from now and we'll keep mum in the corner. Not at all. As it is in the church today, so it was in the early church, when it comes to getting things done, it takes a woman to get things done. And in Luke's gospel, he uses the word apostle to refer particularly to these 12 men who followed Jesus around. But as we read through our Bible and we get to the letters and we hear from some of the other leaders in the early church, the word apostle, it takes on this broader meaning. It includes people who saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. It includes the leaders in the early church and those people are going out and planting churches across Europe and Asia. You had the original 12 apostles, or then 11 because of, you know, Judas. But then Matthias was chosen to replace Judas. And then Saul becomes Paul on the road to Damascus. And then Barnabas and Silas and James, the brother of Jesus, the author of the book of James in the Bible, they were all counted among the apostles. This group starts to grow. Paul also worked closely, closely with Priscilla and her husband Aquila. He lived with them for a while. Uh, and they were leaders of churches in Rome and in Corinth and in Ephesus. They seemed to be like a, a traveling, whether they were planting churches or troubleshooters, I don't know. But they're always mentioned as ministering together in church leadership as a couple. In fact, the Bible records that when they visited Ephesus, they heard Apollos preaching, and actually they took him aside, Priscilla and Aquila, and said, yeah, let me just 
correct some of the stuff that you're saying? Because I heard some stuff that wasn't quite right in one of his sermons. So Priscilla and Aquila were not only teachers, they were leaders of churches in their homes, which Paul mentions uh, in 1 Corinthians, for example. He calls them his, his co-workers, which is a term that Paul uses just for his, his, closest, his closest friends. Paul mentions several other women in his letters who were leaders of churches in their homes. For example, in Romans 16.1, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who's a servant of the church in Centria. I don't know how you'd pronounce that. But what's interesting is the way that this verse has been translated. Because the underlying Greek word that's there is deacon. So what I think you see is some of the cultural bias coming through of the translation committee for the ESV. Because if you read some of their uh, theology books, it's clear that as a group, they don't agree with women in leadership. So when it comes to Paul saying, Phoebe the deacon, they don't translate it as deacon, they translate it as servant instead. Compare that with the New Living Translation, for example, which says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church. So I think this is a good example of why, when you're doing Bible study, it's good to have a couple of different translations and a couple of different commentaries. Because we're all human, right? And the bias we carry always shows up, whether or not we mean it to. You know, we, we say the Bible is infallible, but if you, that definition is actually, normally, the Bible is infallible in its original language. And once people get involved and start translating it into modern English and managing the changes in the language of meanings of words, all that kind of stuff, we need to be more careful. So read widely. There's another example in verse 7 of Romans 16, actually. It says, in the ESV, it says, Greet Andronicus and Junior, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, they are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. So Paul's calling out some more of his friends. Now, here's an interesting thing I learned. Junior is a really rare name. Okay? It's not used very much um, at the time. There's not many documents that reference uh, people who are called Junior. Likewise, there are not many examples of people found in old manuscripts who are called Joanna. And actually, Junior is the Latin for Joanna. It's the Roman version of the Greek name. So some uh, commentators actually think the Junior mentioned here is the Joanna who was traveling with Jesus, who's continued to be involved uh, in the church. Why do I point this out? Well, again, because this is an example where the, the translators of the ESV have a kind of allowed their bias against women in leadership to, to surface a bit. Because this Greek phrase, well-known, okay, can be translated in, in two ways, and it's an equally valid technical translation. It can be translated to being uh, uh, well-known or, uh, you know, kind of respected among, okay? Um, But the, the, the stumbling block occurs. If you say, instead of well-known, if you say respected among, 
it, it means that the people you're talking about were part of that group. So to say that Andronicus and Junior were respected among the apostles, it means they were part of the group of apostles. Does that make sense? Am I, am I being clear? Yeah, okay. Which, if you say that, then you're having to admit that there's a woman who was an apostle, which would then be a stumbling block if you don't believe that women should be in church leadership. And so a different translation uh, choice is made. But I think the, the New Living Translation gets it right. Paul was calling uh, Junior an apostle. In, in Romans 16, 7, in New Living, it says, Greet Andronicus Junior, my fellow Jews who were in prison with me. They are highly respected among the apostles. They're part of that group. They became followers of Christ before me. Now what's interesting, if you go and look at some of the writings of what they call the church fathers. So these are people who are writing some of the earliest commentaries on the Bible. People like Origen and Jerome and John Chrysostom, hard to say. They had no trouble in, uh, with the idea that, that, that Junior was a female apostle in the early church. And in fact, it wasn't until about the 13th century that Bible commentary started to challenge this idea that Junior was in fact a woman. And some of the translations even changed the name from Junior to Julius to turn her into a man to solve the problem. And this idea that Junior was either not an apostle or was in fact a man pretty much held sway until about the 1970s. That's when people started to kind of challenge some of these assumptions in the, in the in the Bible translations and the commentaries and stuff. So the reason for pointing those things out is to say that we need to be careful about the story that we're carrying around in our head and how we allow that to colour and shape what we read in the Bible and what it means. We need to be prepared to let the Bible speak freely and not force our worldview onto the Bible. So let's just take a look at one of the, the passages in the Bible that has caused no end of consternation in the church. You know, like uh, the Apostle Peter said, some of the stuff that Paul writes is hard to understand. Amen to that. Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, and it goes like this. Paul says, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in their turn. And let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in church. And let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, then let the first one keep silent. For you can prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So let your women keep silent in the churches, for they not are permitted to speak, for they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, then let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay. We're going to come back to this, all right? You can put the tomatoes down. Don't throw them at me quite yet. 
Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it only you that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge the things that I write to you that are commandments of the Lord. For any, if anyone is ignorant, let him remain ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Do not forbid to speak with tongues and let all things be done decently and in order. All right, long passage, lots in there. Let's dig into it and go through it in, in some detail. Start at the beginning. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. So let's start with this word brethren, okay? Some Bibles translate it as brothers, others translate it as brothers and sisters. If we take a peek at the Greek that sits here, it is the Greek word adelphos. It can mean brother, but it can mean countryman. It means someone who's also a fellow member, male or female, okay? So it's, a, it's not a gender-specific spe- word. It's a word that's used across the New Testament, and it means members of the church family, men and women, okay? So brothers and sisters. So Paul is talking to the whole church family at this point, okay? He's talking talk to the whole church family. He says, whenever you come together... Each of you, okay, each of you, not some of you, not half of you based on your chromosomes, but each of you will have a psalm to share or a teaching to give or a tongue to, to share or a revelation or interpretation to bring. So Paul opens this section saying there are no limits, there are no gender-based rules around who's allowed to do what when the church comes together to meet, okay, the important thing that Paul says is, let all things be done for edification, for building up the church. Let there be order and not chaos. So reading on. Paul says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or the most three, each in turn, and let one person interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him what? Let him keep silent in church. And let him just speak to himself and speak to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, then let the first one keep silent. For you can prophesy, all of you, one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God's not an author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So Paul is saying, when we gather together, it's not a free-for-all with everyone shouting and interrupting each other and having their go. You know, there's a time and a place for everything. And even good and worthy things wait for their time and wait for their turn. There are times when you should keep silent. But that doesn't mean that you have to keep silent all of the time. Now is the time for prophecy. Now is the time to keep silent. Now is the time to bring a tongue, and now is the time to keep silent. So when Paul says in the next verse, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the Lord also says, he's not giving any more of a universal declaration that women must always be silent in church than he was two sentences ago when he was saying, let the prophet keep silent. Yeah, It's a a time and a um, place-related instruction. Well, what is 
the time and the place that Paul is getting about, okay? Well, the rest of that sentence is, they are to be submissive. Yeah, keep silent and submissive, as the law says. As the law says. What law? Okay, because when you read about the law in the New Testament, it means the Old Testament, doesn't it? The law of Moses, all that kind of stuff. Well, you go read through your Old Testament, there is no verse in the Old Testament that tells women to be submissive to men or wives to be submissive to their husbands. Okay. Wives submit to your husbands is a phrase that comes in the New Testament, but it's not there in the law. Why? Because in that um, old patriarchal society, there was no need for women to be submissive because they were possessions. Right? So it didn't, it didn't come up. So when Paul is saying be submissive, what is he saying be submissive to in the context of the Old Testament law? Well, the only submission that gets talked about in the Old Testament is submission to God. Like in Psalm 37, 7, it says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. And, and the idea of resting in God and waiting patiently for him is closely linked to the idea of being submissive to God. You're waiting submissively for God to do something and you're waiting in faith and with confidence that that is what he's going to do. In other words, wait for God's will and God's timing. So all Paul is simply saying here is that just like he said the prophets should keep silent until the time is right for them to share it, the women are told to keep quiet until God gives you something to say. And when God gives you something to say, then share it. Verse 35, it says, And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. So we need to take off our cultural blinkers to understand what's going on here. Because on the face of it, when as a 21st century woman or a 21st century man, you read an instruction that says, if a woman wants to learn something, she should ask her husband at home. I think someone's in danger of getting a slap, aren't they? I see Leanne's got itchy, itchy palms already. Remember who Paul is writing to and the world in which he is writing. Okay? Up to this moment in history, women were not educated. Little boys went off to Bible school, girls didn't. Women were not educated. In fact, the prevailing uh, view of women in the Greek and Roman world, you go read the writings of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, they will tell you that women are worthless and good for only one thing. Women don't have brains. There's no point in teaching them anything. This is the world view. Okay? This is what Paul is coming against. Education is not something it's worth wasting on a woman. So Paul is not putting the women down. He's not putting them in the place. What he's actually doing is challenging the very fabric of society. He's saying to the Christian men, he's saying, your wives have been disenfranchised and cheated and had their opportunities stolen for so long. So actually, husbands, 
It's your responsibility to bring this to an end. You need to fix it. You need to spend the time and the energy and the money to teach your wives and your daughters, put the effort in so that they can understand what is being taught, that they can read the scripture for themselves, something that has never happened. Paul is not putting women down. He is commanding a change in the way that they are viewed to say, actually, they are as entitled to learn about God and read the Bible as the men are. If you don't know, he says to women, it's your right to know. So ask your husband to give, put the time and the effort in to share what he knows. Because up until this point in history, that did not happen. And then there's this other phrase that comes in, which really seems to jar with everything that Paul has said. This man who commends women leaders in the church, who calls them apostles in his other letters. He says, it is shameful for women to speak in church. This is the same person who in just a few paragraphs earlier, Paul was commending women to pray and prophesy in church. At the start of this chapter, he's commanding men and women to teach and prophesy and interpret each other and bring tongues, which is clearly done by speaking. So how do you make sense of this? What does he mean when he says it's shameful for a woman to speak in church? You know, we interpret the Bible using the Bible. And clearly, in the wider writings of Paul... And in this one Corinthians letter, he is encouraging women to speak in church. So what is going on here? It's hard to reconcile it, but personally, I like the, the explanation I found in a, in a book I read this week. And what, the, the point that the, the commentators are making is that there's stuff that gets lost in translation. So one of the things you don't have in Greek is any punctuation. So where the full stops come, for example, in your Bible, is down to a matter of interpretation of the translators. And where full stops come affects the way that you join ideas together. And the idea is that this phrase, it's shameful for women to speak in church, is Paul quoting someone else. Because it doesn't make sense with the rest of what he said before or what comes after. So Paul is quoting something that is being said in the Corinthian church which Paul doesn't agree with. Now Paul can be pretty salty in his letters sometimes. Okay. You might recall that there's a passage in Galatians that favourite of uh, little boys who like to giggle in Sunday school where Paul is challenging the false teachers uh, in the Galatian church who, who are saying that Christians... If you become a Christian, okay, as a man, then you need to be circumcised just like the Jews do because you need to kind of buy into that Jewish history. And Paul is refuting this argument and he, and he makes this comment and he says, yeah, well, if you believe that, don't just snip the top off, take the whole thing off because that's what you deserve. Right? Paul gets a bit salty. He uses hyperbole. He clearly wasn't saying you need to do surgery on yourselves if you want to be a Christian. So if you think that this phrase that Paul is using is also him 
being a bit hyperbolic, quoting something that he doesn't agree with because he wants to make a point. That then makes perfect sense for the next bit, the next sentence, because verse 36 is this. Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? These kind of things seem senses just kind of sit on their own. They don't seem to flow in a chain of thought with what sits around them. Well, the word that's translated as all, okay, the, the Greek word that sits behind that is actually a, a one-letter Greek word, which is kind of looks like a, a lowercase n. Ni. I don't know how you pronounce it. But there isn't really an equivalent word for it in English. It is called technically a stress marker, and it's used to show a great contrast between two ideas. Okay, so if you were to translate that colloquially in English, it would be you would have to replace it with things like "What? No way! What the heck? For goodness' sake!" You know, it's that kind of a contrasting thing. You'd say something and you go, "No way! That's not true." Let me tell you what it's really like. So if you read these, these three verses with that in mind, then you get something that's a bit more like this. I don't know if you can, Steve, can get, we can read that up on the screen. But it starts with Paul quoting, for it's shameful for women to speak in church as a quotation. Then he says, what? Did the word of God originally come to you? No, it didn't. Heck, are you saying that you're the only people that the word of God has reached? In other words, Paul is saying, what is this crazy teaching that you guys have invented for yourselves? <laughs> you didn't get it from me. Stop preaching some other gospel. That's what Paul is saying. Then he rounds off and he says, if anyone thinks himself a prophet, if anyone thinks himself to be spiritual, then you've got to acknowledge the things that I write to you are commandments from the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. You know, the, the stories that we tell ourselves, the stories that we let other people tell us, they can become a narrative that controls our life. You can't do that. You are not allowed to do that. You are not worthy to do that. You are not clever enough to do that. You're the wrong age to do that. You're the wrong sex to be allowed to do that. We treat these things as true, but they're just some crazy stuff that someone made up. And we believe the story and allow it to control our decisions and our plans and our dreams, maybe even without realizing that is what is going on. But these stories only have the power that we choose to give them. For the likes of women like Mary and Joanna and Susanna, they followed Jesus, they did what they could, and they helped to change the world. They were the eyewitness statements that Luke used to write his gospel. They were the enablers who funded his ministry. They went on to lead churches in their homes. They were recognized among the apostles. They were girls who got it done. And Paul has the final word in closing. He says, so, my dear brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Don't forbid speaking in tongues. And be sure that everything is done properly and in good order. Let's pray, church. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have set us free, free from the shackles of sin, 
free from the fear of death. You have set us free so that we can live lives that are free and not bind ourselves or each other up in man-made rules, traditions, or stories. Set our minds free of the stories that we tell ourselves, so the stories that hold us back and hold us down. Build your church, Lord Jesus. Extend your kingdom and build your body. We pray this in your mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Bless you, Hope Church. Go home and drink some hot chocolate to warm up. It's been good to see you, and we'll see you again either online or here in person, half past ten next week. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Bye for now.